welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week, we promised you something a little different, and we are delivering. It is time to meet Harley Quinn and time to revisit Mr. Satterthwaite in our first short story of the larger Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection, The Passing of Mr. Quinn, first published in Grand Magazine in March of 1924. Catherine Brobeck, tell us all about our victim here. So our victim is one Mr. Derek Kappel. He is the uh, owner, or was the owner of an estate and friend to many and about to be mysteriously married and turns out when our story starts he is some 10 years deceased after killing himself with a shot to the head right so our victim was a victim a decade ago correct we've seen this before in christy and we'll see it again sometimes she likes to do these kind of reminiscence murder mysteries where characters who perhaps had been there or have some sort of an angle on things are, are looking back and trying to recreate and solve the crime from a distance and uh, a murder in retrospect, you might say a murder in retrospect, you might say, and the distance makes things interesting, doesn't it? Let's talk about our suspects because there aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty easy to get through this one. <laughs> yeah, this was a pretty clear case of suicide. The bigger question is, why did this gentleman commit suicide? Let us be clear, there is a murderer in this story, too. And there is a murderer in this story. But let's move on and talk about the world as it appears to be. We are at Royston, which is the home of Tom Evesham and his wife, Laura. And uh, a party has gathered on a wintry January night. And that party includes Mr. Satterthwaite, who we all know from three-act tragedy. A withered, Um, dried-up little English gentleman. Indeed. And then we have the Evashams. And we have Alex Portal and his relatively new Australian wife, Eleanor. And there are bad vibes in the air, at least as far as Mr. Satterthwaite is concerned. Remember, he is a keen observer. He has spent his life sitting on the sidelines and observing various and sundry. That's sort of what he does. Right. And while while he doesn't narrate the story, we are seeing this story from his perspective. True. Yeah, that's actually a good point. You know, it is always interesting to talk about narrative point of view in Christie because it shifts so often. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about how we often prefer, well, at first we didn't, but then we realized that we actually do prefer the first person narration of Captain Hastings in many a Poirot story. And I think that's because often in the third person Poirots, the third person is pretty removed and almost omniscient. And if it's too omniscient, it feels too convenient and it almost feels a little cheap and it just doesn't have the intimacy. Certainly the first person does, but I think it goes a long way. And I didn't realize it until you just made that observation, Catherine. I think it goes a long way to the power of these Mr. Quinn stories that the narrative point of view is quite close to Mr. Satterthwaite because there's an intimacy and a sort of intensity to them that is part of the reason why I I think these stories work. But in any case, Mr. Satterthwaite is um, wondering what is going on here. He senses that something is very much off with the portals. Alex Portal is getting incredibly drunk and Eleanor looks dreadfully pale and distressed. More to the point, Mr. Satterthwaite 
realizes with his keen eye that Eleanor Portal is a natural blonde who has dyed her hair dark. And he thinks to himself, well, that's curious. He knows many a dark-haired lady who dyes her hair blonde. But there has to be a reason why a blonde woman would want to dye her hair brunette, which honestly is a little insulting, I think, to brown-haired women the world over. But Am I wrong in thinking that this very same clue has come up in something before? I think it has. I thought that I remembered that slight clue from my previous read of this very story because it did ring a bell, but maybe I had just read it in one of the short stories that we've read before. I think that we've come across it before and we're both just completely blanking on which one it is because... Interesting. I'm pretty sure we've seen that. Probably in one of the Poirot investigates or something like that. Anyway, she's acting distressed. She heads off to bed, Eleanor Portal, and Alex then just starts getting really aggressively miserable. Dude gets his drink on. Hardcore. And he just starts, he just starts popping them back. So what is going on with the portals? Something not good. We know yep. that much. During this already seemingly miserable evening, um, the men start discussing the fact that Royston had once belonged to their dear friend, Derek Cappell, and that on a night much like this night, (laughs) that had been quite pleasant and boisterous, Cappell announced plans to marry, and he wouldn't admit who he was going to marry. So there was speculation about it, but he refused to name the fiancé. But he's very, very smug, I guess, about it and pleased with himself. Everybody's kind of intrigued and happy for him. And then a few minutes later, walks up the stairs and shoots himself in the head. It's kind of like that opening scene in Desperate Housewives. Normally, there's never anything newsworthy about my life. But that all changed last Thursday. Of course, everything seemed quite normal at first. I made breakfast for my family. I performed my chores. I completed my projects. I ran my errands. In truth, I spent the day as I spent every other day, quietly polishing the routine of my life until it gleamed with perfection. That's why it was so astonishing when I decided to go to my hallway closet and retrieve a revolver that had never been used. What was her name? It's like, what did you do, Mary Sue or Mary Ellen? Mary Alice, what did you do? I was going to say First Wives Club, where Stalker Channing goes Mm. out on the balcony and then just, like, has her coat on and, like, is, like, sipping a martini and then just, like, steps off the edge. Of the four of us, Cynthia was certainly the most likely to succeed. When she decided to do something, she just went right ahead and did it. You raised my Desperate Housewives with a First Wives Club. (laughs) (laughs) At this point in the story, there's a loud knock on the door. And when Evesham, again our host, opens it, we are introduced to one Mr. Harley Quinn. And Harley Quinn's car has had a bit of a meltdown and it's freezing outside. So he asks if he can come in from the cold. And this is going to happen a lot when Harley Quinn makes an entrance in these stories because it's always weird 
and unexpected. Right. And there's always some sort of sort of an effect that makes it seem as if a motley color falls over him, much like the motley suit worn by Harlequin oh. in the Commedia dell'arte. So oh, wait, you're saying that there's a different Harlequin than the romance novels? Oh yes. <laughs> we'll get to that, but right from the get-go, we get a connection between Harley Quinn and Harlequin. See what she did there? Do you see what Dame Agatha did there? I I, I do see that. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, he comes in and the light from the stained glass that had fallen over him recedes. It was just an effect, Mr. Satterthwaite. Comes out of but, his fog. Right. But regardless, Mr. Harley Quinn is a little bit ominous as a personage. He's enigmatic. Right. Tall and dark and a face like a mask. Yes, I believe when he goes and sits by the fire, there's another effect of the light that makes a dark bar go over his face. So it seems as if he's wearing a mask. And yes, Avisham does, of course, let him in for a drink. And while he is at first reserved, like any good Englishman, once he finds out that they know the same people, he gets quite friendly. And so he, who's the same people? <laughs> the same people is Derek Cappell. He finds out that Harley Quinn was once good friends with poor uh, suicidal Derek. That thaws things right up, and Mr. Quinn just jumps right into the conversation. They pick it back up. What Quinn says, essentially, is, oh, right, you know, when I was here years ago, my friend Derek owned this house, and isn't that odd about his suicide? Doesn't that seem quite unlike him? I mean, basically right. what he's doing is he's poking the conversation, right? He's stoking the fire of the conversation. Just as that's happening in the midst of this, Mr. Satterthwaite notices something else. He notices that very silently, the ghostly figure of Eleanor Portal has perched itself on the upstairs landing and is eavesdropping on the conversation. And it's actually kind of creepy the way that she describes it. I found it. Yeah, you know, the, actually, the whole, do you know what? The whole story has a gothic horror sensibility to it. Yes. The Mr. Quinn series in general is unlike most other Christie stories. She has a couple other outliers, such as the stories we covered in our very special Halloween episode, but um, <laughs> or at least one of the stories we covered in our very special Halloween episode. But for the most part, Christie is all about rationality and the supernatural is mocked or at least used as a pretext. But these stories have an element of the supernatural and of the uncanny and the eerie in them right. throughout. And it's not, she's not poking fun at it. She's buying into it. And it just gives these stories a unique flavor within the canon. Right. As I said, there's like a gothic sincerity to this story in particular that's a little unsettling, I would say. Absolutely. And I think I can point to a very specific reason why these stories are so different from any others. And to do that, I'm going to have to go into Agatha Christie's autobiography for a second. Oh but my don't gosh. worry, Catherine. It's like We're just Kemper's dipping in. Favorite moment of the week. Christy only speaks briefly, <laughs> thankfully, Catherine, only <laughs> speaks briefly about the Mr. Quinn series, but here's what she says. These are my favorite. I wrote one not very often at intervals, perhaps of three or four months, sometimes longer still. Magazines appeared to like them, and I liked them myself, but I refused all offers to do a series for any periodical. I didn't want to do a series of Mr. Quinn. I only wanted to do one when I felt like it. 
And I think you can tell these don't have the harried, sometimes, shall we say, workmanlike quality that some of the Poirot short stories, for example, do. Well, it's um, also not, it's not. She very, did it when she wanted yeah. to do it. She yeah. was inspired to write these. Right. And like this one in particular, it's not very constructed. So like for our purposes, it makes it harder for us to discuss to some extent, at least in our normal format. That's why um, this summary you may be able to, to tell, dear listener, is quite descriptive because it's kind of all we can do. Right. <laughs> There's because, not much to break down here. No, there really isn't. Uh, it's a very linear narrative. I yep. mean, it has flashback, obviously, but it's flashback within the course of a very linear contemporary within the framework of the story narrative. Right. Yeah, I mean, so we end on that moment of Eleanor Portal just cowering on the stairs. And no one else seems to notice her except for Mr. Satterthwaite. I know, which just makes it that much more... Eerie. That much more eerie. Oh, here it is. Mr. Satterthwaite started. He had leant forward to contribute a small remark of his own, and in the act of doing so, he had caught sight of a woman's figure crouched against the balustrade of the gallery above. She was huddled down against it, invisible from everywhere but where he himself sat, and she was evidently listening with strained attention to what was going on below. So immovable was she that he hardly believed the evidence of his own eyes. But he recognized the pattern of the dress easily enough, an old-world brocade. It was Eleanor Portal. So, yes, let's talk about the world as it actually is. So the world as it actually is here, the one we're looking at is not the contemporary one, right? It's what happened 10 years ago. Here are some things that we know. Right before the suicide, the mail has arrived. That might seem like a clue, except for the fact that, of course, that was the first thing that they thought was that Capel had picked up the mail and had opened some sort of tragic letter, and that immediately prompted him to kill himself. But none of the letters were open, and the newspaper is merely unfolded. So if none of the letters were opened, then the only potential thing he could have seen was the newspaper. Right. And we've seen news in the newspaper <laughs> as a motivating factor in a previous Poirot short story, for sure. Mm-hmm. Clue number two. Evesham was the one who had the proper phone lines put in to the estate. They didn't exist when Capel lived there. The only way they were able to get the constable so quickly after Capel killed himself is that the constable had coincidentally just arrived at the house with news of a dog of Capel's that had frozen in the middle of the winter, unfortunately. And they knew that Capel really liked the dog, so the constable wanted to deliver this news to him as soon as possible. The deduction there is that the constable's coincidental arrival potentially was in some way significant. You know, the fact that he arrived at the same exact time that Capel killed himself. We're not necessarily saying, nor is the story ultimately positing that the constable did something directly himself to cause Capel's death, but perhaps the appearance of the constable, the presence of the constable, was a contributing factor. Clue number three. So then Mr. Quinn prompts the entire crew to try to pinpoint the date on which this happened. One of the ways in which they do that is, were there any major news events around the time of the suicide? Because there's some confusion on whether or not it was February or January, much like it's January right now in the story. Right. Um, they brainstorm about this and they were like, no, it's February. No, it's January. No, no, no. It's the end of January because there was a news story right at the same time about the exhumation of the body of a Mr. Appleton. The deduction here, because we're talking about a Christie short story, 
is if you're going to exhume a body in a Christie short story, probably you should pay attention to that. <laughs> probably the exhumation of a body within a 15, there 20 page or so short story, story is yeah. significant. <laughs> and he's being exhumed because there's suspicion that Mr. Appleton may in fact have been murdered. Right. So clue number four, a final clue. Derek Kappel did not reveal the name of his fiance, even to his best bros. What is the deduction there? Well, there has to be a reason why you wouldn't reveal the name of your fiance. That's really odd. If you're excited to get married, why wouldn't you tell everyone who you're going to marry? What's a really good reason for why your fiance has to be a secret fiance? Perhaps she is still married to someone? Since there are no obvious problems with him, there has to be something that makes his right. fiance yeah. unsuitable as such until right. presumably some future date. So right. having Especially a husband as- currently is a big a one. potential one. If a reader guessed that as a reason for the unsuitability of this fiancé, that reader would be extremely astute and would be correct. Because let's return to clue number three here in our resolution. So we find out that Mr. Appleton's body was exhumed because people were suspicious of Mrs. Appleton, who was his much younger wife. And upon news of this exhumation and all of this suspicion mounting against her, we also find out that Mrs. Appleton broke a decanter on the ground, and that decanter was filled with the very favorite liquor of her husband. So that is extremely suspicious. It seems as if she was destroying evidence. And in fact, the autopsy shows that Mr. Appleton had likely been poisoned with strychnine. That makes his wife prime suspect, and she goes on trial. Yeah, and so she ends up acquitted, not because they found her innocent, but because they didn't have any evidence that she was guilty. So because her name isn't cleared, she has fled. But also to be clear, the trial and the acquittal all happened presumably months after the exhumation of the body. So this all was all happening after Derek Kappel had committed suicide. Correct. Right. Right. And so after she is acquitted, she flees to somewhere. They don't quite know where either. They think Canada or Australia, someplace where she had relatives in the Commonwealth. But perhaps we do know where. Because uh, yes, who, I think who do that we know we who's might. crouched like a ghost and acting strange and dyeing her beautiful blonde hair hideous brown? Could it be Eleanor Portal? It just might be. It just might be. From Australia and married to her husband Alex now. Right. What we find is that Derek Kappel murdered Mr. Appleton. So he dumped strychnine into that decanter of port and it settles towards the bottom. So it didn't like necessarily pinpoint either of them to like mm-hmm. a certain time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did kill Mr. Appleton. We know all about poison settling in solution, don't we? Oh man, do we ever. <laughs> um, he wants to be with the love of his life, which is Mrs. Appleton. And she with him. They think that they're pretty much good to go. They're going to get married. And then rumor mongers, <laughs> they prompt the exhumation of the body. And so Derek Cavill picks up the mail. He sees a newspaper that has a notice about the exhumation. Then he goes upstairs and looks out the window and sees coming down his wintry drive, the village constable. Right. And so what does he do? He kills himself. Which shows that not only should we not assume anything when we are reading a mystery novel, but we should not assume anything when we are characters in a mystery novel either, or else we shall commit suicide when we need not. Poor Eleanor 
portal, Appleton, she's now returned basically to the scene of the ruin of her life. And it's not explicitly said, but it's pretty much implied that at some point she's told Alex, her current husband, what happened. Right. So he essentially knows this. It's why he's like drinking himself into a stupor because he doesn't believe her. That's the problem. Right. Or at least she doesn't think that he believes her. And we've come across this so many times, right? This is classic Christie, a shadow of guilt and just the taint of murder has been cast over these two young people and they cannot move on with their lives until it is removed. Right. And so she's going to kill herself in the same house. And I'm sure she imagines it's rather poetic since that is where, Mm -hmm. although we are led to believe that she does love her husband with a full heart. So it's not, it's not as if she's pining after poor Derek Capel, but she smashed that decanter to protect him because he had done this for her, but she did not murder her first husband. And because of the intervention of Mr. Harley Quinn, Now her husband is convinced of this fact as well. And perhaps more importantly, Eleanor Portal is convinced of the fact that her husband is convinced and the shadow has been lifted. Right. No longer is she this potential murderess, but she's also kind of a victim in her own right. Exactly. Even though, let's be frank, she was an accessory after the fact. Yeah, if not before the fact. (laughs) I mean, it's a little bit unclear. If not before and maybe during the fact. I know. It's a little unclear that maybe she was plotting this the entire time. So maybe we should be a little bit skeptical about our sympathy for her. Yeah, Alex Alex Portal um, may want to pour his own wine. That's all I'm going to say. Lord knows he's pouring enough whiskey for like a lifetime in the course of the short story. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, she she runs after Mr. Quinn to thank him basically while he goes back to his car, which I guess he just magically knows is fixed because nobody comes to alert him about that either. Yes. We're getting the sense that Mr. Quinn knows things that mere mortals do not know. So perhaps he had a searing vision of the mechanic Finishing finishing up his car. Mr. Quinn is very close to being like a scary stories to tell in the dark figure. Yes, he is. He is. So just to get a little bit at who this character is and what the inspiration of it is all about, because I'll be honest with you, I read the Mysterious Mr. Quinn series pretty early on in my reading of Christie, and I was always Mm -hmm. vaguely confused as to what Harlequin was. I mean, Catherine mentioned jokingly Harlequin, the book publisher, which is obviously a renowned publisher of (laughs) romance novels, because Harlequin is a character that has gone through a lot of different forms over the years. And again, the reason why Christie chose to write a character and call it Harley Quinn and evoke this character of Harlequin is that she actually, before she turned to writing mystery novels, she wrote poetry. As many writers who eventually realize that they are terrible poets do, she started her writing career by writing poetry, and she acknowledges that most of it was not particularly good in her autobiography, I'm sure among other places. But she does say that by the age of 17 or 18, I wrote a series of poems on the Harlequin legend, Harlequin song, Columbine's Pierrot, Pierrette, etc. I sent one or two poems to the Poetry Review. I was very pleased when I got a guinea prize, and it basically went no further than that. But these stories in that she only wrote them when she felt inspired sort of come out of this 
childlike fascination that she had with the Harlequin character. So just really quickly, and I promise I am not going to give a long lecture on Commedia dell'arte, but as you may or may not know, that is an early form of professional theater that was practiced in Italy's heyday was the 15 to the 1700s. And these sketches would include certain stock characters. And one of them was Arlecchino or Harlequin in English. And it's a very well-known character in lots of stories. It's the servant character who's identified by the motley colors of his tight-fitting jacket and trousers. And that Harlequin character started out as a lighthearted, nimble, sort of astute servant who often acted to thwart the plans of his master and pursue his own love interest, who was called Columbine. And he used his wits to do so. He often made a fool of his master. So there's a, a lot of similarities between that and a kind of jester character. And not surprisingly, that character in that he had these romantic aspirations morphed over time into more of a romantic hero, which I would imagine is where we're getting romantic illusions from the Harlequin book series, etc., etc. I would say the character of Figaro... <laughs> In The Barber of Seville, The Marriage of Figaro, if that helps in both of those operas, I think is a textbook Harlequin type character. You get the sense of fun. But also romance. As essentially a leading man. The odd thing is, and this is where my vague confusion always came from, is that that is really not who Harley Quinn is in this series whatsoever. And, you know, Christy is at all. Christy is just using she's using the Harlequinade and she's using the kind of classical allusions to do her own thing here. Because Harley Quinn really is consistently this otherworldly, shadow-like instigator character. So I guess in that, Harley Quinn instigates investigations into various mysteries throughout this collection. His purpose is a little bit similar to the traditional Harlequin character, but he's not, he's certainly never a protagonist. He's certainly not witty. He's not funny. He's not romantic. He's just on the edges. No, and I mean, the funny funny thing is, this really is not a huge probably overlap with us or our listeners, but if you think of, you know, the other famous pop culture Harley Quinn, i.e. the Harley Quinn of Batman. She was known as Dr. Harleen Quinzel, psychiatrist at Arkham Asylum. She was assigned to the clown himself. 
Harley Quinn very much actually does fulfill the Commedia dell'arte kind of things about both being a romantic and a fool at some point and an instigator. There you have a pop culture example that's actually much more suited to taking a variant of the word. So um, I think that makes it even more confusing. Yeah. Instigator is the only descriptor that applies to the traditional Harlequin that you can use for Harlequin. But it's of such a different tonality Mm -hmm. that it just it doesn't totally track, which is why I always found it vaguely confusing. But that is, in fact, where it comes from and what inspired young Agatha Christie. And you will also notice that when I started this episode, I did refer to the story as the passing of Mr. Quinn, because that is, in fact, the title under which the story was first published. And that is actually Mr. Quinn with two ends. This also ties into the adaptation of the story, which I want to go through real quick here, because it's it's interesting in that this story was adapted into a film, and it is the first, the very first English language adaptation of an Agatha Christie story. So really quick here, and I am cribbing off of an introduction to the novelization of the film written by, yes, our friend, Mark Aldrich. So with all credit due to Mr. Aldrich here, this is how this all played out. As we already mentioned, in 1924, the short story, The Passing of Mr. Quinn, was published in Grand Magazine. Then in 1928, just four years later, Christy herself had only been writing for eight years at this point, a film based on the short story came out under the same title. And this was a quota quickie, film, which basically means that it was made to satisfy demands that a certain percentage of domestic films be based on a story written by a British writer. So you can probably guess that quota quickies were not necessarily the best quality. We do not unfortunately have a copy of this film in existence any longer. We don't even have a copy of the script. All we have is the novelization of the film, which also came out in 1928. But just to give you a sense of the direction in which this film went, here is a two-line long summary, because it is insane. So given what we just went through in terms of what the story is, here's what the film was about. Professor Appleby has terrorized his wife, Eleanor, but when he is murdered and her lover, Derek, goes missing, Eleanor suspects the worst. A mysterious stranger known as Mr. Quinney appears and begins to seduce Eleanor, but his alcoholism takes over and he dies. Before dying, he reveals that he was Derek all along and offers the girl to a rival who promises to make Eleanor a happy wife. That's a bizarre plot. So that's a bizarre plot. It has nothing to do with the original short story. And the reason why I'm even bothering to go into this, since we can't even watch the movie, is that this was hugely annoying to Agatha Christie. And it actually was the impetus for her to insist upon the fact that no film ever retained any subsequent novelization rights. And I never thought about it until I read this introduction to this novelization, but That's a really good thing that Christie and the Christie estate made sure that they weren't giving away any novelization. Because can you imagine all of the insane variants of all these novels that would 100% exist in the marketplace because there's a basically limitless appetite for Christie? Right. You know, based on all these crazy movies, it would just be madness and it would totally dilute the original novels and the original stories that she wrote. So this is the one where it happened. It really annoyed her. By the way, William Collins was the publisher of that novelization. So it was her own publisher that published this awful novel that had nothing to do with her story. And we think, or rather Mark thinks, that that's the reason why the novelization changed the character name yet again to Mr. Quinney 
with a Y just to differentiate it from the novel. Like there's a little foreword before the novel begins where it says, just so you know, the Mr. Quinny in the story is the same as Mr. Quinn in the movie, but they don't explain why they're changing the name. And it probably had to do with the fact that Christie requested that they diverge as much as possible from her story. Subsequently, when the story was collected within the greater The Mysterious Mr. Quinn in 1930, at that point, she had decided to change the spelling of the name to Quinn with one N. And then the story at that point was renamed also probably to move it further away from the film and the novelization to the coming of Mr. Quinn. So that's why when you, dear listener, read this story, if you did in fact read the story, it was titled The Coming of Mr. Quinn. Well, so that brings us to an end of Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite, at least for now. Perhaps we shall revisit more of the mysterious Mr. Quinn stories in months, if not years, to come. Maybe we'll follow Christie's model and have a little sit-down with these stories whenever we feel so inspired. Join us next week when we are so excited to at long last be bringing you our next novel. Yes, it is finally happening. Cards on the table. Very our next exciting. Hercule Poirot. Very exciting. In the meantime, you can, as always, contact us. We love hearing from you. Feel free to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can also find Catherine at Bobcat. And reach out to us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And we are also on Instagram at All About Agatha. Please take a moment to rate and review us. We appreciate the ratings and reviews. Makes it easier for others to find the podcast. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.